You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Welcome to the last of this year's presentations in the Euro Democracy Forum. My name is Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies of UW. Um, I also direct the Center for West European Studies there. We are a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence, and I'm in the current academic year the Center Director for Russian East European Central Asian Studies. We're very delighted to have so many of you with us today for what we conceive of as really a very loosely threaded conversation about matters that pertain to European integration and the state of European democracy more generally. Um, those of you who have been um, with us for, for previous presentations in this series know that this Euro Democracy Forum is really conceived to honor Stuart Scheingold. Um, Stuart Scheingold was a professor of political science here at UW. He was actually one of the first uh, people, first political scientists who, who saw and analyzed and understood what he termed the future trajectory of regional integration in Europe with a quite visionary uh, book uh, he wrote in 1970 called Europe's Would-Be Polity. In many ways, uh, Europe still has this would-be polity and Stuart's work is seminal and uh, we want to honor his legacy. Even though he can't be with us today, um, uh, we are very fortunate to have his partner, Lee Scheingold here, who is very generously supporting the series and European studies at UW um, with a fund to organize the series. Today's lecture is also co-sponsored by the Jean Monnet in the US network. Uh, and in particular, we want to thank the University of North Carolina Center for European Studies for supporting this talk. Um, North Carolina knows Phil Ayoub, our speaker today, just as well as we know him um, as an alum. And we'll talk about that in a second. Finally, I also want to mention all our other sponsors. I would like to thank the Center for Global Studies, RECAS, CWES, and Jean Monnet for being involved in conceiving and funding this series. Last but not least, as always, uh, Phil Lyon, our managing director at the Center, as well as Susanna Haley for putting a lot of work into getting speakers lined up and making this talk uh, and the others run smoothly. So uh, without further ado, this is uh, a real pleasure and honor today to welcome Professor Phil Ayoub, who actually has ties, I just mentioned it, to UW, to the Pacific Northwest. Um, 
he was an undergraduate here at UW many, many years ago and uh, did his degree in the Germanics department. He also uh, took classes in European studies. Um, I met him then, uh, many other professors uh, had the pleasure of working with him then. And since then, he's really become uh, one of my dearest colleagues and also collaborators. Um, so I'm very happy to have him with us today. He is an associate professor in the Department of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College, uh, received his PhD at Cornell University in 2013 and then was a Max Weber postdoc fellow at the, the European Union Institute in Florence. It would take way too much time to mention all this awards and accolades. So let me just say that his 2016 book, When States Come Out, Europeans, Sexual Minorities and the Politics of Visibility, came out with Cambridge University Press, has really become a catalyst for a rising field of LGBTQ studies in Europe and North America, but also globally. Um, he rightly won uh, the award for outstanding early career scholarly achievement on this book in 2018. He is, um, award-winning author of many articles, uh, currently also co-editor of the European Journal of Politics and Gender, and he is currently in Berlin on sabbatical. So all the more um, happy we are to have him with us today, um, talking about pride and prejudice, the impact of the first pride parade um, in Sarajevo. Phil, thank you for making time at 9 p.m. at night in Berlin, and we're looking forward to talking with you and to your talk first. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabina. It's really um, a huge honor to be back at the University of Washington. I, um, I always have to say this whenever I get to speak here, but it does feel like coming home. And I, um, I you know, those years there, uh, through models, uh, role models um, like Sabina and other professors, they're definitely paved the way for how I understand a lot of things about European politics. In fact, it put me on this path. So it's always really nice to get to um, be back in this community. So thank you for inviting me and also for getting to talk about um, a new project. This is a project that I uh, co-authored with um, Douglas Page and Sam Witt. Uh, we did a study around the first ever Pride uh, in Bosnia in 2019, wanting to understand how an event like this affects uh, public opinion in the in the society at large. And in a way, it fits, I, I think, well with the EU Democracy Forum in that the European Union has worked on promoting rights like LGBT rights in the European neighborhood and, and are involved also in promoting events like this. Yet we don't know so much you know, about what kind of effect these events have uh, in terms of how they influence society. So that's what I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about today. And I'll try to present the study which um, was published in the American Political Science Review uh, earlier this year. So uh, let me start off by just uh, you know, providing a bit of context about what Pride is or what it means. So Pride is, a, is an event um, that uh, first, the first Pride was in 1970 uh, in New York. It was commemorating 
the uh, first anniversary of um, a police raid around the Stonewall Inn bar uh, and patrons fought back. And it led, you know, that event and um, the mobilizations that followed would lead to this new generation of LGBTQ activism called gay liberation, which was defined by its visibility and the notion that, you know, coming out and coming into the streets could transform the lived experiences of queer people as well as the lives of those around them. And this innovation of pride, this march, uh, would spread to multiple uh, dozens of countries around the world. And in that decade, in the 70s, there was also proliferation of gay liberation movements and organizations around the world. And even though they take different forms, so for example, in Germany, they're called uh, Christopher Street Days, even though the Christopher Street is also paying an homage to uh, that bar uh, in New York, because the Stonewall Inn uh, is on Christopher Street uh, there. Um, and they've, while they have, you know, taken on these different manifestations, they at the same time have this enduring fixture of LGBT visibility, identity, community, these kind of themes uh, in their in their work. And then, of course, you know, the um, we could uh, point to the fact that today, you know, over 50 years on, the world looks markedly different for queer people in terms of the rights that are afforded to them. And, you know, in terms of transnationally circulating issues around human rights, this is one where we've seen rapid uh, favorable change. Yet, um, I should note that in most corners of the globe, the struggle for rights and recognition and acceptance is ongoing. Governments fail to protect or actively discriminate against these communities uh, in most um, uh, in most countries in the world, and active backlash against events like this uh, continue to be pervasive. So for us, it was still an open question about what would an event like this, you know, the first ever event like this in a uh, socially conservative society uh, yield. And so I'm going to start off by showing you a very short clip from a documentary film um, that was actually filmed about this first pride that I'll be talking about that we studied. And it just sets, it's just an interview with a, um, with a man uh, outside of Sarajevo and he's explaining a little bit how he feels about this event. And I thought it would be a nice way to set the stage of the environment or the context in which, uh, in which this um, event took place. So, um, you know, what we wanted to ask is when when a pride is organized in a context like this, what are the outcomes in terms of social uh, tolerance and political participation? So does an event like this generate support for LGBT plus people and activism on their behalf? And there's, you know, there's a few ways we looked at this in the study. One is that we measured changes in attitudes towards LGBT activism before and after the event. And then we also ran um, some survey experiments to, uh, to basically feel out the willingness of folks to participate in such activism themselves um, before and after the event. And one of our motivations for this was theoretical in that you know, a central challenge for contentious politics scholarship involves isolating the effects of social movement performances on opinion and behavioral change. And there have been um, a few reviews in the social movement fields that really lamented the, um, that the field has devoted little, I quote, little systematic effort to account for this kind of impact of advocacy on the communities in where it takes place. And so we wanted one, we had a theoretical motivation that we wanted to study this question, but then also we had an interest in terms of a, um, 
uh, a motivation, a more practical one, and also one coming out of the LGBT politics literature, is that there was an ongoing debate about the meaning and significance of pride among scholars and among activists. And there were, there's in a way, there are two camps uh, in recent decades, and that some really see pride as a necessary and defining element of social justice activism. Ideally, event like this could, you know, boost social tolerance to LGBT community communities consistent with um, research on the contact hypothesis, which posits that direct or indirect interactions with outgroups could reduce prejudice. Um, Pride also garners international support from the EU, from embassies, et cetera, that could you know, possibly legitimize LGBT people. So for many, these events remain front and center as these important, most important events in this activism. Uh, for um, uh, for responding to opponents, capturing hearts and minds, and mobilizing sustained uh, uh, sustained participation uh, for this cause. At the same time, there is also a concern that prides might lead to resentment or backlash towards LGBT people and groups, uh, LGBT groups in socially conservative uh, societies. There is this a concern, for example, that since pride has this origin in the West, that when it travels to new locales, it might seem, you know, culturally insensitive, it might provoke um, uh, feelings of foreignness that this is an outside foreign imposition, and thus it could de facto or paradoxically invisibilize queer local queer communities by um, attaching them uh, to something, uh, to a context uh, outside of the local one. And um, there's also, of course, concern that pride has serious side effects, that the visibility around it could be a double-edged sword and could also heighten repression. It could also enter in a new discourse, again, that vilifies LGBT people as, you know, quote unquote, unnatural, criminal, sick, foreign, sinful, these kind of uh, depictions that paint these communities um, as a threat to national identity or the traditional family or to religious values. So with this debate in mind, you know, we wanted to um, we wanted to draw mechanisms from both of these camps to theorize uh, that um, that the effects of pride might be interactive and they might operate in different ways across geography and social group. And so we argue that prides, you know, they should work to influence their communities by raising awareness um, of LGBT people and shifting cultural norms through this celebration of queer life uh, and also legitimizing uh, LGBT people in the public space. Um, yet we want to acknowledge that this might not work very in a very linear way, and it might not be uniform across society, that it could vary in reach according to a person's proximity to the event itself and also um, uh, a person's contact with LGBT social networks uh, beforehand. And so with this, we say, we, we make this argument that the felt intensity of the visibility of pride should vary across space and that it's uh, that people most proximate to it should be the ones that will be influenced more by the event. Uh, and beyond this, we also know that many people hold negative beliefs about LGBT people, uh, and they might see prides as, you know, quote unquote, threatening to the social order. So in particular, we have uh, research that shows that people who are more attached to religion or to nationalism, and in, uh, in Bosnia society where we have um, lots of fault lines around uh, religion and ethno-nationalism, that the greater attachment to those identities, the more uh, threat is usually attributed to LGBT people because sexuality like gender are fluid concepts and they're seen 
as you know, challenging the fixity of national identity or, or more rigid identities, and thus they're often painted as, as threatening. So we might expect that who interacts with the event might also respond differently. Um, and so our main hypothesis or our main hypothesis is around attitudinal change where we look at these local and nationwide panel surveys before and after the event. And we um, are, you know, our first hypothesis is that pride should increase support for LGBT activism. So we should see support go up after the event. Um, yet at the same time, we think this, this effect might be circumscribed that prides uh, may have the greatest effect on individuals in close proximity to the event. We also look at the propensity of people to participate and even support this kind of activism financial, financially, which I could talk about in the Q&A, but I won't make that a focus of the, the talk for, uh, or in the interest of, of time. Um, so uh, the, um, the case selection that we have here, uh, we, we selected Bosnia for a few reasons. One, it was very interesting because it's the last country in Europe to have its first pride. So we thought this would be a really neat, um, you know, natural experiment to think about, uh, you know, looking, isolating this event and seeing what kind of an effect it would have. And then we were also interested in Bosnia because it is a socially conservative society and all of our societies are that way towards LGBT people. I mean, there's many parts of the US or, or here in Germany where I am that we would define that way as well. The reason we use this definition for Bosnia is because we see comparatively high levels of homo and transphobia. And it's also a context where um, LGBT communities are still relatively new in the domestic discourse. And so you can see here in this, um, this is from survey data that shows that over 80% uh, of citizens in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina feel that homosexuality is never justifiable and 77% of respondents uh, reported having zero feelings of closeness towards gay people on a scale of zero to 10. Uh, also, the, um, you know, Bosnia is a hard case because it's a post-conflict society. Uh, it reflects these conditions of heightened ethnic nationalism and religiosity that scholars have theorized would correspond with, you know, uh, attributing high degrees of threat towards LGBT mobilization. So we see these divisions, of course, um, uh, among Muslim Bosniaks, Orthodox Serbs, and Catholic Croats that really bring religion and ethno-nationalism into the mix. Um, at the same time, uh, Bosnia is also seeking broader integration into, um, into Europe. And here the EU also plays a role in a sense that it can lead to a kind of promotion of these values, or it has at least um, said it promotes LGBT rights in certain ways, including in its, in its neighborhood. So um, there's a lot of different you know, forces uh, tugging uh, in different directions on this case. So we thought it would be especially interesting to understand what, will, what would happen here. And um, the, the pride itself, to give you some context, it had the goal of shedding light on experience of discrimination. And the activists organized it on September 8th of uh, 2019. And the motto was, uh, we want to come out, which uh, as it was described to me was um, a way to, it's what you yell at the bus driver when you wanna get off, you know? And so it had like local resonance and also it was framed as the Bosnia and Herzegovina pride. Uh, intentionally, intentionally, because they wanted it to really be reflective of the whole country and the LGBT community in the whole country. And it was emphasized as, um, as a, uh, a nationwide event. And they also wanted it to, um, uh, to uh, be local in the sense that international guests like support from ambassadors and from embassies were asked to be 
you know, not in the front lines of the event, and they wanted it to feel like a protest, less like a celebration that you might be more familiar with in Seattle or Chapel Hill, but um, more uh, of a demonstration feel uh, for human rights. And in the end, 3,000 people uh, uh, marched, um, and they were protected by um, a 1,000-person police force. And one of the activist organizers uh, who gave a speech, um, I wanted just to read one short expert of it to kind of bring you into the, uh, into the space of the event. Uh, she said, we are aware that this first march will not change the world, and we are aware that there are many LGBTIQ persons who, even after it ends, will not be able to tell people closest to them who they really are. But we know that this march, the struggle, will give them the strength and hope that change can happen. This march gives us strength and faith that it will start the process of breaking down the prejudice against us. We are here, we exist, and we're not a threat to anyone. We are part of society, and we have the right to be equal citizens. Um, and so this, I think, this excerpt of the speech hopefully gives you a little bit also from the perspective of the organizers what they hope to accomplish. And in the end, the, the event went really well. You know, people uh, I, I talked about it as a joyous event. Um, there were some counter uh, movements that organized before, but they, uh, that the, the march was perceived as a joyous one for the people taking, taking part in it. Um, so, we examined the effects of it um, using uh, an, a nationwide uh, cross-sectional surveys and local online panel surveys before and after the Pride took place. So this was a pre-post-treatment design where um, these uh, interviews that were face-to-face -face interviews that were conducted surveyed a series of questions, including how people felt uh, towards LGBT activism, whether they strongly opposed it or strongly supported it um, before and after uh, the Pride. And then again, we ran some survey experiment, experiments, which I could talk about in the Q&A, but we'll do so less so here. And then after the study, we also uh, did post-treatment interviews, six post-treatment interviews with key organizers um, to uh, ask them about the mechanisms uh, undergridding the uh, correlations that we uncovered in the uh, quantitative analysis. And here is, um, here's one of our, our tables that shows you, uh, I think, some interesting findings. And you see here uh, the first two sets of, of the bar graph are um, the data from inside Sarajevo. So that's where the march took place. So that, that's, those are the people who are most proximate to it. And then you see a data from the rest of the country uh, spanning all of Bosnia. And what you see here is that on the right, um, outside of Sarajevo, you see uh, little or no movement in public opinion following the pride. So um, opposition remained unchanged, uh, over 64% strongly opposed. Uh, however, inside Sarajevo, there's a near 10% drop in strong opposition from before to after the Pride. So this suggests that Pride did have a positive effect um, on reducing opposition and raising support for LGBT activism in proximity to where it uh, took place. And more symbolically, you know, that 10% is a pretty large shift in that short amount of time. Uh, and it, uh, you know, symbolically, we could say pride flipped public opinion in Sarajevo in favor because it moved it actually into uh, the majority. So overall, consistent with our first hypothesis, we, we do find evidence that pride has an effect 
uh, on increasing LGBT activist support or support for such activism, but it does appear um, that this effect is limited to those within proximity to the event itself, as predicted by uh, hypothesis two. Uh, next, we also explored uh, the impact of additional extended controls on this basic treatment effect. And what you see here, um, you see that the pride treatment effect in Sarajevo, which is reflected in that pride treatment times Sarajevo, uh, the third line down, that that is robust to extended controls. So that means that um, that this, uh, you know, that people in Sarajevo had a, a stronger, uh, it had a stronger impact on them. And the figure also shows that people who uh, had contact with LGBT people, which is measured as an index of people who feel close to LGBT people or have had contact with them or uh, support LGBT rights, those people were also most likely to have um, uh, moved further positively after the event. Um, also support for EU integration. Uh, so people who supported the EU integration, they also were more likely to move in favor. So that's kind of what we would expect based on, you know, that more nationalistic people should be more opposed, but someone who's more in favor of the EU might presumably also be less nationalistic. So that moved in a positive direction. Um, and then we see that people who identify as Bosniak, Serbs, and to a lesser degree Croats are less supportive of LGBT plus activism than those who assume the superordinate identity of Bosnian or others. So that's also as we would expect that the more attached you are to specific and, and more reified national identities, the more opposed you would be. Um, so there is a persistent negative effect of ethno-nationalism and religiosity on support for prides. Um, and then in our survey experiments, which again, I'll save for the Q&A, but there we do show that also these events lead to a greater likelihood of uh, being willing to participate in the future, as well as willing to attend and underwrite these events um, financially. So uh, we wanted to also, you know, to explore a little bit why is this happening? Why do we see this proximity mechanism undergridding the pride effects? And to do that, we conducted these semi-structured interviews, which were uh, really inspiring um, to get to talk to the organizers. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of them talked about uh, what we, uh, you know, talked about this mechanism or, of contact that really they find uh, important for their activism. And so they, they felt that pride gave people the opportunity to see them and that, that people in the general society were confronted with the fact that some of their stereotypes didn't hold. So pride contributed to portraying um, a positive picture of the LGBT community and forcing people to discuss LGBT rights. That said, it was interesting that even in these interviews before um, showing the results that some had already hinted that they felt there might be uh, a diminished effect outside of the locale where it took place. And one activist said, I quote, pride had an especially positive impact on those people that were physically closer to it. People in, in the Sarajevo region were more confronted with it and compelled to form an opinion on it compared to others. So even though it was called Bosnia and Herzegovina pride, it was de facto Sarajevo pride. People in places far away from Sarajevo could go about their regular lives without dealing with it. So what are some of the ways that this proximity mechanism works? Why did it matter? Um, one is a pretty straightforward one in that people could just see and interact with the march. And you see some pictures here that were, um, uh, that were taken 
at the march of onlookers waving and interacting with the marchers, and which can also localize those marchers as indigenous uh, uh, members of the community, et cetera. So this interaction was important. Uh, two, the, the route caused a disruption in the city that activists actually saw in a positive way because this disruption forced people to deal with the event. So even if you didn't want to go to the event, you couldn't go to work without finding a new way to get there. You know, everybody had to think about it and address it, which we were told would lead to these conversations at the dinner table where, you know, people would have to discuss, you know, how their neighbor, were their neighbors going to the event or what did they think about it? Or did they find out that one of their kids had a different opinion on the event than others. So there were all of these, you know, intergenerational conversations, et cetera, that really uh, took place in a way, but it happened more uh, in Sarajevo than outside of it. Um, also, people were more visible and actually only visible during the march itself. So you had this um, concern that um, around violence, so that the organizers said that when people came to the event and wore their, you know, rainbow colored uh, t-shirts or anything that would identify them uh, at the march that they should wait to put those on until they were in the parade route and that they should take those symbols off when they left it. So in a way that visibility did not travel back with them uh, to uh, their hometowns around the country. And then finally, uh, there was also discussion about how the, both the quality and the quantity of media coverage um, dissipated the further you got out of the city. So I, uh, I have a very short clip now that just gives you a few, also from this great documentary, which you, by the way, you can watch uh, on YouTube if you're interested, but it just gives you a few impressions um, from some of the folks in the community responding to the event. And then at the end, also an activist uh, talking about it. It's just a few minutes and then I'll wrap up with the conclusion. Okay, so um, to kind of sum up before the Q&A, this was the, the first study to, the, to assess the effects of LGBT pride activism on the broader society using this kind of a pre-post-treatment panel design. And we do provide evidence, or this case provides evidence that prides are successful in raising LGBT awareness support and that they have mobilization potential. Overall, prides do heighten the visibility that validates LGBT plus identity development, even in a very hard case like this one in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And one activist had this quote, you know, when I, I asked her, uh, about, you know, why, why does she think that first prides matter? And she said, it's always a struggle to have a first pride, but then it happens and people wake up in the morning and they find that life has not changed. Purity in society has not been overthrown. The leaders of the church are still the leaders of the church. And that's why the first pride matters, uh, full stop. And I think what she was getting at with this is that the sphere that exists with what this event might do, um, it, it dissipates a little bit after because at the end, the world is not that much more, uh, you know, uh, terrible as people would have feared. So at the same time, while we find uh, this important effect, we do want to recognize important scope conditions re regarding what prides can substantively do to shift public opinion initially in a conservative society. And this is due to pride facilitating contact with LGBT people more in its proximity, which could be effective at allaying the negative stereotypes that people have of participants, um, but less so in further removed contexts where movement demands might become diluted and where the event and the people uh, in it might become more invisible. 
Uh, and furthermore, while these prides um, may yield potential rewar rewards, they also carry serious risks. So for LGBT movements, security remains a major issue for prides and their participants, which places important ethical constraints on when and where prides are appropriate. And the organizers behind this did a lot of work to organize it in a safe way. And that's also not just unique to Bosnia, even within the EU, there's many cases where um, I've done work before where these can be quite violent and outnumbered events. Um, and then finally, one, you know, one more optimistic note is that I wanted to, to caution that we're looking here in these attitudes at the general population. And one thing that um, activists also mentioned is that they felt that while, you know, this effect on the general population might be more uh, contained by uh, proximity, that when it comes to the LGBT community itself, the effects might be more far-reaching. So uh, activists told us that, you know, I quote, we received a lot of messages from LGBT plus people from smaller communities and towns saying that LGBT pride gave them hope to carry on. That empowerment is most important for us, end quote. So um, this idea also that, you know, these events are also for the community themselves and there that they can really be an empowering uh, and important event. So I'm going to wrap up there. And I also really want to thank uh, uh, Lee Scheingold for uh, sponsoring this event and also to UNC Chapel Hill, um, you know, this, uh, it's, it's really an honor to be invited uh, to speak here and, and thank you for having me. So I'll turn it over to uh, back to the moderators now. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, this is really a, a, a great continuation of the kind of work we've seen on visibility in the 2016 book and since. Um, I, I, I like the notion that this visibility is not linear, that it's kind of producing different segments of effects um, across populations and, and probably also across time. So this was the first Pride Parade. Will there be a next one? And what will that look like? Um, so um, before I go into the chat, so or in the Q&A, please put uh, your questions in there. Um, let me maybe just uh, get a couple of methods things out of the way that that since I'm moderating, I'm interested in. So I'm just going to take the privilege of asking them. Um, the uh, pride effects you showed um, the, uh, on support actually had, from what I charted down here, only um, a slim effect in the rural category in no effect, showed no effect in the age category. And my, my thinking would have been that rural urban would have been a stronger effect and age also might produce stronger effects. So, so how did you interpret this? Yeah, no, that was, that's, you really spotted one of the, the main pickles for us when this came out, because we were very surprised by that as well. Um, and it was those, they did have, those factors did have more of an effect when we remove some of the controls. So in the trimmed models, we still see some of those effects by age, et cetera. But when we included the full model, those, event, uh, those effects diminished. So they had small effects sometimes, but they weren't in the way that we think of it in the US, for example, where we have these huge generational differences. And there it was really that we, we see, you know, once you control for religion, for uh, nationalism, et cetera, um, that these uh, effects diminish. And I think it's also telling for us that we can't just think of this, like you mentioned, as a linear progress that eventually 
younger generations will replace um, uh, uh, attitudes on this and it will be done. We do see variation across countries, you know, I mean, uh, Hungarian youth are more conservative than Dutch youth uh, in Europe. There's, uh, there are different patterns by age. And we also in the US have seen, uh, you know, where we saw a lot of rapid changes in younger populations uh, in the first 15 years of the new century. Some of that plateaued a little bit actually during the Trump administration. I think it's going back up now again. So I, I think it's, it is kind of a warning also that it's not um, just a generational age story uh, when you control for lots of other factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, thank you. So um, I'm going to turn to the Q&A and um, there is a question, um, an anonymous question about uh, the role of um, communications technology. So since it's a long question, I'm just gonna read it. Uh, UW professor Kate Starbird discovered how bots amplified opposing sides in the Black Lives Matter protests. Hostile foreign actors may have even used social media to organize opposing demonstrations and create public clashes. The goals, polarization and destruction of democracy, not support for any side. And uh, the, 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 the person asks or says, it looks like this is not happening in Bosnia. Are there any similar things happening? Does this play out somehow in tactical planning of gay pride organizations? And did the pride organizers consciously work to marginalize uh, radical provocateurs? So two, two questions in here, at least that I can detect. Maybe we can start with the bots and the amplification of extremist echo chambers potentially as a, as a strategy. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So if I understand it right, it, you know, are there also transnational currents in the other direction also influencing uh, mobilization? And, and there, I, I think actually, um, I, I think the, the person who asked the question is, is onto something that there, there is this dimension. We see it in a lot of, um, we see these currents in a lot of countries. Um, I, while I don't know entirely, you know, how present it was in social media in Bosnia, there are these frames around traditional values, around gender, so-called gender ideology, so-called bans on gay propaganda, and this kind of discourse that is actually replicating in a lot of, uh, in opposition to a lot of women's movements and LGBT movements in a very similar way across different uh, contexts. And so talking about LGBT people uh, in, in the opposition, talking about them is interesting in Europe. It, plays kind of a similar script in multiple places, which would make me think that there's also, you know, there are coordinated events and actors are actually, I do know that from other work that there's, um, there are INGOs, including from the US, like the World Congress of Families that are working uh, and organizing across borders uh, to push a, um, a very, you know, strategic effort to oppose rights like this from happening. And does that have an effect in a place like Bosnia? So in Bosnia, there were two uh, uh, counter protests organized um, and they were actually that documentary goes into the, some of the organizers from them a little bit too. And they were also speaking this kind of familiar language that, um, that we know from many other contexts opposing LGBT rights. 
Uh, but the uh, the events themselves, they um, organizers actually felt like they backfired a little bit because they were some of their arguments were so violent or so out of touch that it actually kind of shifts the script sometimes, which we've also seen in other countries where sometimes when the opposition is is too violent, it's hard to really say that it's the LGBT people that are violating the national norms and morals, et cetera. And while these ones didn't cause, you know, there weren't clashes and there weren't, um, there weren't, uh, uh, there wasn't violence against the protesters because they were so organized and they were so protected. They were using a lot of this kind of unsavory argumentation and language, uh, but they were, you know, there was so much protection of the event itself that uh, they dissipated and they didn't have large numbers in this case, which is different than what I've seen in some other contexts where the LGBT marchers will be largely outnumbered by, by folks who will come to protest them. I hope that answers that cluster of questions roughly, but feel free to ask again. Thank you. So I'm going to take a couple of questions together uh, from Louisa davidson um, a colleague, and from Sarah Dreyer uh, here at UW. Um, both refer to religion, the role of religion uh, and, um, you know, religious individual messages, but also collective voice. Uh, Louise is asking if you saw any differences between, for example, Muslim and Christian um, involvement and, and messaging on the event, um, or is religious, do you, do you consider in your work religious a, a homogenous category that you investigate? Um, she says, I know you've argued before that religion is most effective in opposing LGBT rights when it's tied with a sense of nationalism. So is that the case here um, in, in um, Bosnia-Herzegovina? And then um, um, Sarah's question goes in a similar direction, asking um, if there are, if you see any evidence in your qualitative research of more progressive or more inclusive religious um, leaders or perspectives that come to play um, in the pride? These are great questions. And they actually connect a little bit because my answer to Louisa's also connects with Sarah's. And um, uh, I, um, and who I should say, Sarah's work is also very important on this question of religion and LGBT rights and nationalism. So yes, we do find, we do look at the, the to answer Louisa's question, related to religion and nationalism, we do interact that and that is a powerful predictor. So that would be in line kind of with what we would expect that the way religion is politicized would have an effect. And then we also see variations among uh, the different religious groups. Um, and it uh, uh, with um, Muslims and Serb and Orthodox Serbs being slightly more conservative than Croats. But then again, compared to the more secular or less religious attachment, there's a strong effect for, for all, uh, all more religious people. So as a, as a whole as well. And all of that data, by the way, is in, there's a very long appendix to this paper. It's 120 pages. It was like writing another book. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of charts on all of the uh, on all of those questions. But one of the things that gets at Sarah's question as well and Louise's question about differences between Muslims and Christians from the interviews that I thought was really interesting was that a lot of organizers said that they had the most solidarity, even though it didn't uh, show that 
you know, Muslims were much more favorable or anything, but they said the, the most solidarity came from imams actually in the context where there was, that was leadership where they felt recognized that even though they were not coming out and supporting the pride um, on separate interviews. So different occasions with people from different backgrounds mentioned that the um, that leadership in the Muslim community uh, did draw a link to kind of um, uh, intersectional understanding related to Islamophobia, saying that we are aware of discrimination and thus we shouldn't oppose it that way. And so they felt, you know, organizers felt that the Muslim community was actually um, from their leadership, at least from, uh, I guess we could say from the pulpit or whatever, uh, expressing the most restraint towards opposing what, what was being organized, which I thought was really both inspiring and, and interesting. And it wasn't a focus of the study, so we, we don't go at it at length. Actually, I don't think we address it all in the paper, but we do have a section also in the appendix where we talk about this a little bit and this idea of kind of intersectionally linked fate and, and this interesting finding where act, LGBT activists felt that they had most of it from Muslim leadership communities uh, in this context. Thank you. Um, so one more um, um, direct question to your findings comes uh, asking about smaller regions. Um, did you find the Sarajevo Pride Parade to be primarily in an urban area, for an urban area, or did you in your interviews in the qualitative data see a lot of people from across the countryside um, making the journey to participate in Sarajevo? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, yeah, organizers did say that it drew from queer communities that people knew about it and it had these kind of far reaching effects that people came from the countryside and throughout the country and some people who didn't feel comfortable enough to come wrote organizers and the uh, organizations um, that existed, uh, the LGBT rights organizations in the country letters and, and different kinds of messages after saying that they heard about it and were excited about it. So it wasn't just a Sarajevo event and it was really organized. So the organizers were both focused on getting support from LGBT activists from a lot of different places. So really was, they've been talking about doing this event for years and they really, there was always a split also in the activist community, kind of like in the theoretical discussion of people weren't sure whether it was a good idea. And they really waited until they felt like they had a sense of support from activists in many different places. And it was really, again, branded as a nationwide event. So it was supposed to be an event for the whole country. Um, and, and so people also turned up from other places in the country, even though the effect that it had on the general population seems to have been more localized in Sarajevo. Um, we also have this figure in the appendix where we show kind of attitudinal movements in, so for, for folks who really know their way around Bosnia and Herzegovina well, you can see different towns and different districts through the whole country and how people moved uh, there. Uh, and uh, and that, that is kind of interesting to see those comparisons there. Yeah, including other metropolitan areas, for example, where we might expect more support so that maybe a bigger city, if it's just an urban effect, um, we didn't, it was really a proximity one that was the strongest. Um, so we didn't see that attitudes jumped in like other metropolitan areas. And once you publish this, the annex or the, the 120 pages will be public. 
Yeah, it is actually. So it is published already and it's uh, open access online uh, through Pride Month, actually. So anyone can read the paper open access um, on the American Political Science Review. And the appendix is also, uh, it's there's an, uh, a 30 page one online and then there's the 120 page one is available on um, my research gate. Or if you Google it, you can you can find it or you can email me, <laughs> but it's, it's all a, freely available online, yes. Great, thank you. So we have time for a few more questions. I'm turning to Sai Stanford now, who is asking um, if uh, the Pride Parade had effects in terms of specific policies. So for example, is there something like an anti-discrimination law in the making? Um, uh, so does this or conversion therapy ban uh, discussion and, and law, um, is there anything that materializes in terms of policy out of this mobilization that you can detect? That, that is a fantastic question. And unfortunately, no, we don't look at if people's attitudes towards, we, we look at how if they change to LGBT rights kind of broadly, but we don't look at specific policy uh, pieces. Um, there have been certain uh, uh, new uh, um, policy moves being made by the state, I think also in part um, to position itself uh, to look good to the European Union in a certain way. That's, we see a lot of states um, in the European neighborhood making certain moves. So there are some anti-discrimination protections in place, but we didn't in our study ask specifically how people felt about it. We are, however, um, fielding, uh, hoping to field a new survey to track this for some years down the road to see if these effects hold over time. And so uh, I'm actually just looking at the survey questions for the newer waves that we're gonna run. So that might be good actually to look specifically at um, at opinions towards specific pieces of legislation. So thank you, Asai. All right, and then we have um, Lady Rios asking um, if there have been extreme negative responses from these events opposing the movement, um, materializing in hate crimes, or, um, you know, just, just, I would, probably add stronger polarization. Um, I think you've in part addressed this with the nonlinear movements, but is, is there anything sticking out where you would argue um, the event itself has, has had, had immediate effects uh, in terms of rising opposition? Yeah, that's that's a really important question, and I think that um, you know I think there are some data here that suggest also this more negative story uh, as well. So even though this this wasn't a particularly violent event, and organizers were really proud of how it went, that it was kind of this joyous, jubilant event that they were protected from counter protesters. I've been at many other events in other countries. Um, uh, including other countries in Europe, where it is quite violent. Even when you're marching, things are being thrown at you, and um, and there's a lot of really violent hate speech, and then people get attacked after. And so, in a way, you know, the Bosnia organizers were were very 
prepared for all of this. You know, they've been thinking about this for a while and we're really thinking about strategies, how to protect participants. And they were very good at doing it. Um, at the same time, we do see data there that this intensification that some people, you know, really doubled down on their negative attitudes. Actually outside of Syria, but they even in some of the analyses the attitudes got a little worse after the event. So while the takeaway as a whole is yes, we see bigger gains than we see losses. I think this um, inclination to talk about polarization is an important one. And, you know, another one, another context where I've worked uh, um, more in the past uh, in Poland, you know, which we hear about in the news a lot now with LGBT free zones and all of these negative things. Uh, and people really talk about, um, you know, how disappointing it is that we don't see more changes there, which I fully agree with. Um, at the same time, it's really interesting that, you know, about half the country supports LGBT rights now, which is something that 20 years ago, you know, when I was first becoming interested in this case, obviously we didn't have numbers like that. So there are numbers getting better, which is often not part of the media story in terms of how resilient these movements are in terms of the gains they're making. Yet at the same time, uh, Lida is right when it comes to this idea of polarization, that there is another segment of society that's fired up against these kind of events. And, uh, and so I don't know, I don't, I still don't know entirely where to fall on, you know, is it, um, is that a win or not? Um, I think you can look at it in two ways. And I think that it's also kind of impossible to uh, protect people from having this polarization entirely. So, uh, you know, it's not just activists fault for organizing a parade and being visible because these issues are no longer, you know, we don't live in domestic vacuums. So we're not contained. There's a lot of countries that preemptively start um, exercising this kind of political homophobia with uh, really aggressive laws towards these communities before activists even organize a pride or answer something. That also leads to polarization. So um, we have all of these uh, interesting uh, dynamics. And I think my main uh, lesson from it is that we have to keep in mind that we, you know, these movements operate in an interactive environment, both local, national, but also transnational, with all of these currents leading to different kinds of effects around LGBT rights. Um, and we do live in an era of polarization where I think that's an ongoing struggle for these activist uh, communities. Yeah, very good point. I, I, I thoroughly agree that this is not a vacuum in which you just look at the mobilizations, the context, um, the different forces bearing on it. Um, definitely something to keep in, in mind. And um, I would like to end with um, a question by Mira, which um, addresses the transnational impact uh, potentially. Mira asks, um, what kind of support, what kind of um, infrastructure or community support could be given from um, people here, um, people who emigrated from former Yugoslavia, um, but still have close ties and, and, and could potentially be of influence as a, as a um, outside um, actor. Um, so have you seen any kind of transnational, assistance, support structure, um, being on the ground and that we could uh, support? Or is that something that um, people need to start and gen generate first uh, regarding Bosnia? 
That's a fantastic question. And thank you, Mira, for giving me the opportunity to address it because I, yes, there are ways to be involved. And in fact, this kind of involvement does make a big difference. I mean, not from this study, but from other studies, we know that in new EU member states and in the neighborhood even more so, a lot of this organizing is funded a lot by diaspora communities and by migrants, queer migrants who are involved and interested in their home countries and are, um, and are working there as well uh, after living in places where they might have more safety to maneuver on these issues. Uh, and we know that the funding budgets from a lot of these civil society organizations are also supported by uh, more by international funds in more hostile contexts. So, uh, or more socially conservative context. And in, uh, in Bosnia specifically, you know, there's a great organization called Sarajevo Open Center that's doing wonderful work that um, folks can support if they, uh, you know, care about this issue and organizing there. I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm less of a Bosnia expert than I am on other countries I've worked in, you know, since I'm mainly looking at this from an LGBT theory perspective, but I'm really impressed with the folks that I've um, uh, from this particular organization and how and how they've worked. And, and I do think that this kind of support uh, matters, but it's really important when we're trying to support this kind of activism from the outside that we really let people on the ground dictate how it goes. And this is something where sometimes, you know, even well-meaning intention, like I remember around the Olympics in Sochi, when there were some movements uh, in the US uh, saying that we should boycott the so Sochi Olympics and organizers on the ground were saying, please don't do that because that would really increase violence <laughs> towards these communities. That's not the, the right strategy or people were dumping, you know, the wrong kind of vodka uh, out, outside in sinks. So these are, these are the things where we have to really, when we help internationally, I, I think, like Sabina said about the not living in vacuums, there's a lot of currents and transnational currents have been very important for this kind of promotion. I don't think it's coincidence that we live in a world where a lot of different types of LGBT policies that were existed nowhere not long ago are now popping up in multiple places. That has to do with these transnational currents, but we have to do it carefully as well because they can also be a double-edged sword. So supporting local civil society, I think is one good way uh, to do that. Thank you very much. And that's actually a very good note to end this year's Euro Democracy Forum on and to end this talk with Phil. Uh, always inspiring. This is really great work. And uh, we look forward to future iterations and, and the next chapter in this work. Sure, this won't be the last time we have you with us. Um, for now, I would like to thank the audience. I would like to thank uh, Lee Scheingold one more time in particular for making this all happen with us. And of course, Phil to you for spending your evening um, in your living room instead of, uh, well, if there is anything to do in Berlin right now. Exactly. <laughs> There's not, yes, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, so everybody, please stay safe. Have a great summer. Stay tuned. Check our website uh, this summer and we'll give you updates on how this Euro Democracy Forum continues. Thanks to all our supporters and have a good day and a good evening to you, Phil. Bye-bye.